Good morning, everyone. Great to see you on this uh, beautiful spring day. Glad you're here. Hope you're okay. We're continuing this series we've been on now for a number of weeks on hot topics, and today is uh, no different. This is a, if, there, if there ever was a hot topic, this is a hot one. <laughs> so the question, what about hell? And we want to consider that. You know, most, uh, most Christians, most churches don't tackle this subject. The reason why they don't is because it's a tough subject. It's very difficult, very hard. And yet the Bible has a great deal to say about this subject. And of course, we want to be faithful to the biblical text as well as loving and careful and gracious and sensitive to everyone at the same time. And so that's, that's our motive today. We're going to ask the question, what about hell? Today we've taken as our text from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. These are the words of Jesus. He's talking about the sheep and the goats and the end time and what's going to happen. And so I'm going to read for us verses 31 to 46. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We use the uh, New International Version typically in our worship services. If uh, you have that, you can open. If not, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to honor God's word. So as you're able, would you please... And again, these are the words of Jesus. He said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, need clothes, clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I, will, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help? And he will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God inspire us today, instruct us through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. John Wesley, many of you know, was the father of the Methodist movement, lived in the 18th century. And he said that there were two primary requirements for people who wanted to join the early Methodist movement. One was that you pursue holiness, personal holiness, and the second thing is that you have a desire to flee from the wrath which is to come. Pursue holiness and a desire to flee from the wrath to come. Very interesting perspective, huh? D.L. Moody is a name that many of you remember from history, said that if it were in his power, the method he would use to motivate his young preachers would be to dangle them over hell for five minutes. Then he said, then they would be ready to preach. <laughs> Could be, could be. Billy Sunday was a very powerful evangelist in the early part of the 20th century. He said, if there was more preaching on hell, there would be less people going there. 
interesting perspective. Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century was a Christian leader and intellectual in the truest sense of the word an intellectual. His place among the thinkers of the world is high and unmistakable. He was a greatly used man of God. He was a pastor again in the 18th century New England. He was at the forefront of a work of spiritual revival, which historians later described as the first great awakening in this country. He was really the lightning rod for that work of the spirit for about 25 or 30 years in the middle of the 18th century. He was one of the great preachers of his age. And when you hear great preacher, you may think dynamic, charismatic, all of that. Actually, he was just mostly thoughtful. And Jonathan Edwards would stand at his pulpit, read from his manuscript, barely lifting his eyes, rarely raising his voice. It was just stand up and read it kind of preaching. And yet God used him profoundly. His most widely quoted sermon is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is the most famous discourse of its time and perhaps the most terrifying sermon ever preached. He preached the sermon in his own church in early in, 19, in, in 1741 with, with some effect but was asked by a friend to preach in Enfield, Connecticut on July the 8th, 1741. And as he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the pillars that held up the balcony in the church that day, people were getting out of their pews and going over to the pillars and grabbing the pillars, begging Edwards to stop preaching because they felt themselves slipping into hell. Powerful move of God through this man's life. I've I've, uh, I want to share a few excerpts from the sermon. I read it for the first time late one night in the third story of my seminary, uh, seminary library, and it was, it was pretty sobering. But here are some excerpts. For example, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to rend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to hold you up and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Another excerpt, if God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Finally, the bow of God's wrath is bent. Let me just ask, who writes this? I mean, this is remarkable, isn't it? The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Wow. Just for the record, I want you to know that I believe in hell. I believe in it rationally. I believe in it emotionally. And frankly, it impacts me every day. It, it bothers me. It jars me out of complacency. Nevertheless, the modernists in our world reject the idea of final judgment and hell. They say, I cannot reconcile the very idea of hell with a loving God, even if he is holy too. Therefore, it's tempting to avoid these kinds of subjects in our preaching and teaching, the, the, the subjects that may be perceived as bad or harsh doctrines of the historic Christian faith. Let me just, uh, let me just remind you, though, that Jesus had a lot to say about it. He had a lot to say about it. 
We live in a permissive society as well. I wonder sometimes if there are any Christians left who actually believe that God would allow anyone to go to hell. You don't hear the subject of hell talked about very much in our culture, especially even in our churches. Understandably, the reason for that is the subject is so intense. It is so unpleasant. It is so frightening. It's so dreadful that people understandably try to avoid it. A recent article by Jeffrey Scheller begins, it used to be pictured as a literal place of fiery torment, an outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Modern politically correct hell is much more benign. It's embarrassing, even cartoonish. Says one observer, hell has disappeared and no one noticed. Yet the subject of eternal judgment and hell is found throughout the scripture. Now, I want you to know that I believe it's important to talk about, think about, take into our value systems things which are clearly taught in the Bible. And it's interesting to note that the Old Testament prophets had things to say about judgment and, and, and hell. New Testament apostles had, had occasional comments to make about it. And, but I want to put this uh, statement on the screen for you because the vast majority of direct references to the place called hell comes from Jesus himself. People ask me from time to time, do you believe in hell? And I say, I say yes, I do. Why do you believe in hell? And I say, it's very simple, Jesus did. Jesus didn't avoid the discussion at all. In fact, he planted a one-word caution sign between you and hell's path. And that word is perish. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting, everlasting life. Jesus spoke of hell often. Perhaps you didn't know that 13% of his teachings recorded in the Gospels refer to eternal judgment and hell. Two-thirds of his parables relate to resurrection and judgment. Jesus wasn't cruel, of course. He wasn't capricious, but he was blunt. And his candor on this subject really is stunning. I just challenge any of you, pick up your Bible, begin with one of the Gospels, find the red letters if your Bible has red letter edition, just read the words of Jesus and, and note how often he is talking about this subject. He speaks in tangible terms. For example, he said, Fear him, he warns, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10. He quotes Hades' rich man pleading for Lazarus to, quote, Dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, Luke 16. Words such as body and finger and tongue presuppose a physical state in which the throat longs for water and a person begs for relief. Physical relief. The apostles said that Judas Iscariot had gone to, quote, his own place, Acts chapter 1. The Greek word for place here is the word tapas. We get our word topography from that Greek root, which means a geographical location. Jesus declares heaven with the same noun. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a tapas, a place for you, John chapter 14. Hell like heaven is a location. It's not a state of mind. It's not a metaphysical dimension of floating spirits, but an actual place populated by physical beings. Now, let me just say, it's a woeful thought. It's horrible that God somehow has quarantined a precinct in his vast universe as a depository of the hard-hearted. Jesus paralleled hell with Gehenna a rubbish dump outside the southwestern walls of Jerusalem. It's infamous for its unending smoldering and decay. So this garbage dump outside of the city, constantly smoldering with small fires, he employs Gehenna, the name of that garbage dump, as a word picture for hell, the place where there, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark chapter 9. 
Jesus speaks of sinners being, quote, thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus describes the length of heaven and hell with the same adjective, eternal. They will go away into eternal punishment, but they're righteous into eternal life, Matthew chapter 25. Hell lasts as long as heaven. Now listen, hell may have a back door, hell may have a graduation day, but you won't find it in the scriptures. Very sobering. So the question is, why did Jesus have so much to say about this? Why did he bring it up so often? I want to submit to you that it's because better than anyone who has ever lived, he understood the reality and the torments of hell. And just, just a reminder that Jesus is the, is the one who came to do the work of human redemption. That was his mission. Luke 19 says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus spent much time preaching and teaching and generally talking about hell, and he used very graphic terms. He clearly warned people to avoid the eternal penalty of a place called hell. Therefore, by what authority do we neglect the subject? By what authority do we leave out anything Jesus talked about from our own thoughts and our own beliefs and our own actions? Now, I want you to know I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel literally translated means good news. So the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that's, that's what I proclaim. And I, I share with our associate pastors every time they go out to uh, do a funeral somewhere. I say, remember, you've got to find good news. You're a gospel preacher, so find good news. There's got to be good news in the middle of all the subjects that we address. And I think there's good news in the midst of this one as well. But having said that, hell stands like a monolithic tombstone in the Scripture. And if you, if you picture the horizon of biblical history as, a, as a, like a cemetery, this big, this big stone monument right in the middle of the cemetery, this big Gothic stone that's bigger than all the others, that's the subject of hell in the context of Scripture. It's there, and it's hard to miss. It's mentioned on more pages of the Bible than heaven. Yet the doctrine of hell poses questions that have run theologians as well as common believers just run a ragged from ragged to apostate. People just can't get their minds around it. It's just, it's too much. It's too awful. But consider this. If God is unchangeable, James 1, and if not a jot or tittle of the word can pass away until heaven and earth come to an end, Matthew 15, if the scripture cannot be broken and God himself cannot lie, and if we are to take the scriptures at face value and refuse to shy away from even their darkest warnings, then there is a hell it is eternal, and those who go there will suffer acute and infinite pain, and they will have no hope of ever getting out. Matthew 8, Matthew 25, Mark 9, Luke 16, Revelation 14. Hell is a staggering doctrine. It's horrific. And while one might think that such words alone would shiver the soul of any human so that they would flee to Christ without a backward glance, just the opposite is true. Thousands of people mock the idea of hell. We hear people talking about hell and joking about hell. And we, and we use it euphemistically, you know, just in, a, in the past. And that was a hell of a meal we just ate, you know. We just throw it around. I'm going to hell. That's where all my friends are going. Ha ha. That's where the party is, going to hell. Wow, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. Millions more soberly reject it. Perhaps billions don't even know it exists. So here are the most logical questions that come of it. How can a God of compassion, love, mercy, and grace create such a place? How can a Lord who possesses all power to save and redeem and, 
and, and apply his redemption to humanity. How can such a God talk about, well, even hallow such a doctrine? You get the impression when Jesus was talking about it, he was very, he was very sober, very sincere. As I say, almost a hallowing tone in talking about such a doctrine. How can a good God justify a place called hell? We know that God is love. He's love personified, magnified, exemplified, 1 John 4. But God is also infinitely holy and perfectly righteous. The scripture presents Jesus as both the Lamb of God who is humble and meek and dies for the sins of the world. And he is also portrayed as the lion from the tribe of Judah who can claw unrepentant centers to pieces. If this is the picture that reveals an answer to the question, ultimately we have the answer. The question of how can a God create such a place? And the answer is very simply and very clearly, God's character demands it, requires it. His nature and character reflect the need for it. The foundation stone for the reality of both heaven and hell is the character of God. While God's love and mercy and grace are demonstrated in the atonement of Christ, other attributes demand equal authority and actually justify hell. Now, let's just spend the lion's share of our time this morning talking about the attributes of God that lend itself to places like heaven and hell. The first is, it's on your outline, is his righteousness and holiness. That God is righteous and holy means he always acts in accordance with those things he deems just and lawful. He cannot do anything less than what is right. Are you okay with that? God can only do what's right. God's great plan for, is ultimately to bring the universe back to perfect righteousness, back to harmony with his character. This is what we talked about heaven last week, that ultimately God is going to make all things new and, and bring all of those things, including you and I, into perfect unity with his own character, his own perfect nature. And so that's God's design. In Christ, he makes us all new creations, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But what about those who don't seek his righteousness, who desire darkness over light? There's a second option. God will confine such people in a place where they cannot affect or harm those who seek righteousness nor pollute the perfect environment of God's holiness. That place is called hell. Let me tell you a story. Years ago, uh, we learned about a little brush fire of God's renewal, his reviving presence. The Holy Spirit was moving in in special ways in people's lives and we learned that there was a special meeting going to be conducted in Kentucky in Wilmore, Kentucky. And so I just thought I need to expose all of our staff, our program staff to this activity of the spirit. And so I said, said to our program staff, we're all going to Kentucky for a few days. One of, our, one of my associate pastors said, I'm not going. I don't think this is of God, so I'm not going. I said, do you like working here? <laughs> so he went and... <laughs> And we had a wonderful experience. It was really very special for all of us. And my wife, Beth, had an experience. Let me describe it to you. Now, you should know, if you don't know my wife, Beth, my wife is a precious person. She is as close to Jesus as anybody I know in the world. Sometimes I wonder if, if she's still living in this world. You know, she just, she's so close to, she's so close to heaven all the time that I wonder if she's just not slipping in, there, in and out. You know, just kind of crossing through the veil somehow. And so she's, she's not a girl who has, you know, a lot of baggage and a lot of problems and a lot of sin all piled up anywhere. She's, she's solid. She really is. And so we're in this meeting. 
And in those days, sometimes when the Spirit of God would fall and come into a room with such strength and such presence, people found it easier to lie down on the floor rather than to try to stand up. And so Beth laid down on the floor, and she's lying on her back. And within just a few moments, because God's, God's presence just settled so heavy in the room, and, and she was lying there, and she took her hands, and she covered her face, just like this. And then I noticed tears began to spill out of her eyes and roll down the side of her face onto the floor. And she laid there like that for 45 minutes, just weeping and sobbing. And in between her sobs, I heard her say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. That's all she said for 45 minutes. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Now, I was very, I was very curious to know what her experience was. And so when she finally got up, I said, what happened to you? She said it was like the veil of the temple was removed and the pure, undefiled, burning holiness of God was before me. I, I, I saw the glory of God. She said, do you remember when the priests who tried to go into the, into the temple on occasion, they couldn't stand because the presence of God was so strong, so powerful? I said, yeah. She said, do you remember when Isaiah saw an epiphany, had a revelation of God himself? Isaiah 6, 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And, and the consequence of that, he saw these seraphim uh, on either side of the, of the throne of God in heaven, these magnificent creatures of God, six-winged creatures. With, the Bible says with two, they're covering their faces as if to say they weren't fit. They were, these, are the, these are the magnificent sons of God that God has uniquely created to be in the presence of God, to experience the glory of God. They're seraphim. There are only two seraphim in the universe. Only two angels in the universe named seraphim. And they're in the presence of God. And they, they have six wings. They cover their face. And with the other two of their wings, they cover their bodies. And with two, they're flying around on either side of the throne of God. And they, they respond day and night, day and night for eternity, back and forth to one another in antiphonal response. One says, holy, 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 Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And in response, the other one calls back, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And, and the place begins to shake. And in Isaiah's vision, what happens when we finally tune back to Isaiah, this is the pro leading prophet of his generation. He's the leading man of God in his, in his time. And now he calls out, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm taken apart. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of God. And so he, he's quivering. He's in the fetal position, quivering on the floor, essentially covering himself up, saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Beth was experiencing the holiness of God and instinctively covered her face and began to weep. Now, let me just remind you that the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. That He dwells in light. And that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In America, we have, we have a created God in our own image. The American God is a tiny little God. He's, just a, he's a happy little God. He's a, he's a warm and fuzzy God. 
He sets it, we put him in a little, he's a little country club God. He, you know, he, everything's, everything's just nice and neat and in its place. He's like the little Pillsbury Doughboy God. You know, you kind of poke him and he smiles. That's the God we've created in America. That is not the God of reality. That is not the God of the universe. That is not the God of the Bible. The Bible describes God as a person who is utter and absolute in his righteousness and his holiness and will not permit the presence of that which is unholy and unworthy. That's the nature of his character. It demands it. Now, the second thing is his justice. This is also part of his character. The justice of God functions as a logical complement to his righteousness. His righteousness demands that he makes things right. But his justice demands that something be done about sin. Because in God's economy, everything that is, that is out of balance must come to balance. Everything crooked must be made straight. And again, to bring about perfect justice for all the wrongs in the universe, God has two options. One is he can make payment for them by himself through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, or he can requi require payment from the sinner. God cannot wink at sin. He can't overlook it. He can't allow it to persist. Habakkuk 1, Psalm 5. I'm, I'm moved very powerfully by the words of uh, J.I. Packer. Dr. Packer wrote a book, a very widely read book called Knowing God, and he vigorously defends the necessity of God as judge with these words, and I quote, why, he asked, do men fight shy of the thought of God as judge? Why? Why do they feel the thought to be unworthy of him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Now let your mind go here. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? And the answer, of course, no, he wouldn't be. Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history the Hitlers and the, and the Stalins, if we dare use such names, and his own saints, would such a God be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Listen to his rationale. Moral indifference would be an imperfection of God, not a perfection. But not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. He said the final proof that God is a perfect moral being is not indifferent to the questions of, of right and wrong. It is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. And indeed, we all expect that from God. What do we expect from God? We expect, him to be, we expect Him to be just. We expect every wrong to be righted. We, have, we take hope in knowing that everything crooked will be made straight. We take confidence in the notion that everything that's been unjust and wrong and abusive in, in humanity, all of that's going to be straightened out. Everything wrong done to you. It's going to be made straight. And we're comforted by that. And so the Old and New Testament reveal aspects of God's judgment. For example, there's going to be societal judgment. Any society which institutionalizes oppression will be judged. There's internal judgment. The individual who chooses the way of wickedness will never find rest or satisfaction. Habakkuk 2. There is final judgment on all of mankind. The prophets speak of a cataclysmic disaster to sweep the whole world at history's end. And this is a view of the act of God's judgment, Isaiah 13. There's final judgment on individuals. There will be a resurrection day when full and final judgments will be made toward every individual who has ever lived, Matthew 25. What is lacking today 
in the modern American church, in my observation, is this certain sobriety and holy fear about the Christian faith. What is missing in the American church, in my opinion, is the fear of God. We go about our lives as if God doesn't notice. We go about living our lives as if God doesn't care. We go about living our lives as if we'll never be accountable to Him in any way. So we have church as entertainment in America. We have church as therapy in America. We have church as religious education in America. We have church as pageantry. We have church as politics. But what is often missing is precisely the element that filled so many of Jesus' own parables and teachings, that there is a holy, all-knowing God who is going to judge us based on what we did with Jesus Christ and the resources He gave us to watch over and to invest. We are ultimately all accountable to Him. God's character, His justice demands it. The last point is this. The combination of love and wrath that are all within the nature of God. These two aspects of God's nature are linked together in, in the doctrine of hell. For example, listen, His love requires a hell because He must protect those He loves from the defilement of His enemies. His wrath calls for vengeance that his enemies be punished for injuring, hating, and rejecting him. Let me ask you a question. Does God love you? Does God love you? The answer is yes. God loves you. Now here's the question. How do you know? How do you know God loves you? Well, you have some evidence of it, right? He's blessed you. He's saved you. He's provided for you. There's all kinds of evidence of God's love toward us. All kinds of good in fact, everything good that's ever happened to you in your life is because of the gift of God to you. And so we see God loves us. But ultimately, how do we know that God loves us and will love us eternally? Let me tell you, there's only one way we can know for sure, and that is based on His character. God's character is unshifting, it's unchanging, it's immutable. So when God says, I love you as part of my character, this is my nature to love you, then you can count on that. You can count on that. And how can you be assured then that there's going to be judgment and vengeance? How can you be sure of that? The one way you can be sure is the same way you can know God loves you. And that's because the character of God demands it. The character of God requires that level of justice. His love and His wrath both at work. The nature and character of hell. You know, uh, people have been asking me the last couple of weeks, how are you doing? And people ask me this, how are you doing today? I said, well, I'm doing okay. Was something wrong? Well, you know, I've just been in hell. I've been, I've been researching hell for weeks. And I have to tell you what it's done. It's left me depressed. I mean, I, I just, you know, the, finally the sun came out. It's springtime. I put on my, night, my happy shirt. And, but none of that really is reflective of what I'm feeling. Peach color. And, it, and it's happy shirt. But I'm, I'm actually depressed, <laughs> and I've been sad for days, and I know why. It's because I've been studying hell. You spend any time studying the doctrine of hell, it will get your attention. It's a sobering thing. Now, some of you say, well, I'm, I'm not ever going to do that. Well, I've already done it for you. Listen to this. As you study the scriptures and the agonies of hell, it's, it talks about total solitude, Mark chapter 9, absolute darkness, Jude 13, utter worthlessness, Job 18, fire and burning, Revelation 14 and 21, thirst, Luke 16, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22, sleeplessness, Revelation 14, shame and disgust, Daniel 12, hopelessness, Matthew 25. 
you begin to see that the nature, the nature of hell is the exact opposite of all that God is. He offers hope. But in hell, you writhe with despair. He gives peace. Hell screams with pain. He wipes the tears from our eyes. Hell is nothing but shrieks and weeping. He gives us rest and water and food and fulfillment. Hell offers only thirst and hunger. He is light. Hell is blackest darkness, Jude 13. Hell ultimately is complete and total deprivation of everything God created that people need and want and enjoy. Thus, hell is nothing more than existing in a world totally bereft of God. Clearly, hell is not a pleasant picture. It's so awful. But it's not meant to be anything but awful. It is the prison for all those who willfully reject God and His Son. Remember, hell is not some tactic on God's part to scare us into repentance. Hell is not some, some phony threat, some, some psychological manipulation. I'm not preaching on it today, just so you know, just FYI, I'm not preaching on hell today to scare anybody or to try to emotionally manipulate you. No, not at all. No. It's the, it's the only thing he can do with those who hate and reject him. His character demands it. That's what's going on here. Let me put this statement up on the screen for you. Hell is reserved not for those souls who seek God yet struggle, but for those who defy God and rebel. The ultimate choice of where we will spend eternity belongs to each one of us. So, so in history's highest expression of fairness, God honors our preferences. It's, it's not His will that any should perish, but the fact that some do highlights God's justice. God must punish sin. Revelation 21, 27 says it this way, Nothing impure will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So God, inherently holy, must exclude evil from His new universe. God, ex eternally gracious, will never force His will on you. If you're going to hell today, if there's someone in the room today and you're headed to hell, you're on the road to hell, you can stay on the road if you want. If I were you... I'd get off. I'd get off that road. I'd get off that road right now. I'd get off that road immediately. I wouldn't wait for five more seconds to pass if I were you. I can tell you, if, if I suddenly became aware that I was lost and I was headed to hell, and that, that became a, tr a reality to me, it wouldn't take me long. Because you don't want to go to hell. You don't want to go. But if you go... If you go, you'll remember moments like this. Because hell is a place of regret. You'll remember a moment like this. And you say, well, now you're manipulating me. No, I'm just telling you. You'll remember me. You'll remember what I said. Listen, if you're going to go to hell, don't go to hell from a spirit-filled church. That's the worst place from which to go. Because, you know, in a contest like this, you had every opportunity to get off the road to hell and head to heaven. I encourage you to go to heaven. That's where God wants you to go. He wants you with him. He loves you. He's made provision for you. C.S. Lewis, my favorite author, as you know, he wrote these words. He said, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. Listen to this. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I'm in hell, I want to get out. No one in hell will want to get out. What? Yeah. How could a loving God send sinners to hell? The answer is he doesn't. 
They volunteer. There'll be no atheists in hell. You go to hell, you say, are you an atheist? Oh, no, I believe in God. I just don't like him. I just don't want to be with him. Accuse God of unfairness? Look, he wrapped caution tape on hell's porch and posted a million and one red flags outside of the entrance. If you're going to hell today, you're going to have to descend its stairs. You're going to have to cover your ears, blindfold your eyes, and most of all, you're going to have to ignore the epic sacrifice of history. That Christ in God's hell on humanity's cross crying out in the afternoon into a blackened sky, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God who hates sin unleashed his wrath on his sin-filled son. Christ who never knew sin endured the awful forsakenness of hell. And the, the supreme surprise of hell is this. Christ went there so you don't have to. Yet hell could not contain we know that he arose not just from the dead, but from the depths. And when he ascended finally on the third day, he said, Look, I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave in my hand. And once and for all, I've defeated them all. That's really good news. A woman told about the final hours of her aunt. The woman lived her life with no fear of God or respect for his word. She was an atheist. Even in her final days, she refused to permit anyone to speak of God or eternity. Only her maker knows her last thoughts, eternal destiny, but her family was there to hear her final words. Hours from death, scarcely conscious of her surroundings, she opened her eyes and addressing a face visible only to her in the room, she defied, you don't know me? You don't know me? Her family was left wondering, was she hearing the pronouncement of Christ from Matthew 7, 23, when he said, I never knew you, depart from me. Contrast her words with those of a Christ follower. The dying man made no secret of his faith, no secret of his longing for heaven. Two days before he succumbed to cancer, he awoke from a deep sleep and told his wife, honey, I'm living in two realities. I'm not even allowed to tell you. There are others in this room. And on the day he died, he opened his eyes and he asked, am I so special? He said, why should I be allowed to see all of this? And then he was gone. Listen, if you're on the road to hell today, stop and get off. If you don't want to go there, God has made a way for you. You can face death with fear. You can face it with dread. Or you can face it with hope. You can face it with joy. Remember what Jesus said, whoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. God makes the offer. We make the choice. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Today, if you are uncertain of your eternal life, you do not have assurance of your eternal destiny, you can have that assurance before you leave this room. These things have been written in order that you might know that you have eternal life. You can know that you know that you are right with God and made ready for heaven. And the way you do that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving Him as your personal Savior, the gift of life that He has offered you in His own life and death and resurrection. You can receive by faith, accepting His forgiveness, His righteousness, his perfection that makes you ready 
to meet a holy, righteous God. If that's your need today, I want to pray with you. And I trust that if you are certain of your salvation, you'll pray for those who may need that before they leave today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word as sobering, as shocking as it is. Thank you, God, for your truth with which lamps our feet and lights our way. Lord, we know that the fear of hell is not, is not the best motivation, but it's your kindness, your goodness, your love and your mercy that leads us to repentance. It's the hope that you offer us in Christ. And so today we find good news that even the concept of hell is there because of your character. And an aspect of your character reminds us that you love us with an everlasting love. And as we receive you into our lives and believe in your name, that we will be saved. That if we trust in you, we'll not perish, but have everlasting life. So friend, if that's your need today, you can pray these simple words in your heart. Lord, I need you. Forgive me my sins. I'm lost without you. Come into my life. I receive you as my Savior. I want to live for you and no longer myself. And I place my hope, my confident trust in eternal life in your hands. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for me. In your name I pray. And the people said, Amen.